And so the irony is that with all of that history, in the rearview mirror, the Israelites would choose to go down to Egypt for help. Or we might say, at an even more simple level, the irony is that they would choose a horse over God. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of a new three-part series, Why Do We Go Down to Egypt? from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text is from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 31, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah wrote at a time when the nation of Israel was crumbling due to a lack of obedience to the God of Israel. The northern kingdom was about to be overrun by Assyria, and Judea in the south was teetering on the edge, eventually to be taken over by the Babylonians. When you're going through a difficult time, who or what do you tend to run to first? We often desire to turn to the things of this world for help instead of our good, all-powerful God. God's people, the Israelites, faced constant dangers following their slow downfall after the kingdom was divided following King Solomon's reign. Let's consider this further in part one of Why Do We Go Down to Egypt? If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 31, and we'll be looking together at just the first three verses. Isaiah 31 verses 1 through 3. Uh, I'll read the text and then... We'll just pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time together. Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look on the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do love you. It's our joy this morning to sing your praises. We joyfully sing that you are the Holy One, that you are glorious, and you deserve our attention, our worship. We thank you this morning for the gospel. It's the gospel by which we're saved, by which our sins are forgiven, by which we're made righteous, by which we're reconciled with you. And it's through the gospel that we have fellowship, fellowship with one another and with you. We praise you for these truths, and it is our desire that our lives would conform to your will, that our lives would sit in line with your word. It's our desire that we'd be Christ-like, that we would be men who lead, lead in our homes, lead in the church, 
And yet, as you know, there is still much sin in us. Many ways in which we fail to honor you, many ways in which we fail to trust you. And so our prayer is that you would be at work this morning as we turn now to your word. Would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts? Help us to receive the truth this morning. Please deal with our iniquities, our infirmities, our weaknesses. Even this morning, please shape us yet more into the image of your Son so that we would honor you, we would love you more, and we would lead those around us in like manner. Father, we commit this time to you and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the theologian Oswald Bayer that wrote, without trust there is no life. Without trust there is no life. When I first read that, I thought maybe that's a little bit of an overstatement, but then upon further reflection, you see that Bayer was exactly right. Without trust, there can be no life. The reality is, all of us are very dependent upon one another to simply live our lives, to simply go about our daily tasks. We're a highly interdependent creature. When you drive through the green light, you exercise trust in the person at the red light to not drive. When you order the food at the restaurant, you exercise trust in the chef that he's prepared a meal that is safe for you to eat. When you put your money in the bank account, you exercise trust that the bank will keep it safe. And the list goes on and on and on, hundreds if not thousands of times every single day, we exercise trust in one another. So that without trust, there really can be no life. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to you when I say that right now, Society is experiencing a crisis of trust. On the horizontal level, at the societal level, there is a, a lack of trust, an absence of trust. I first began to think about this when the pandemic was really just beginning. And at the same time, you'll remember, there were riots all over the country. And one thing that became readily apparent is that nobody was willing to trust each other. People weren't taking one another at their word. There was a breakdown of societal trust. And to be clear, I don't think that either of those events necessarily caused the lack of trust, but rather they just revealed it. I think this absence of trust had been murmuring below the surface for a long time, and it just so happened that two events, some months ago, revealed how desperate is our situation. No one willing to lean on other people to take one another at their word. It creates real problems, real problems in society. Perhaps more worryingly, it creates problems within the church, or it can do. And the reason I say that is because there is always only ever one direction of influence between the church and society, and sadly, it is not outwards. You understand that it's never the case that whatever is going on in the church starts to be patterned and imitated in society. Sadly, that's not the direction of influence. 
Rather, what we see time and again, what history testifies to, is that when there is a pattern of thinking or of behavior in society, over time, if the church is not careful, that thinking, that behavior starts to show up in the pews. The direction of influence is only ever in one direction. And so as we look now at a time when there is an all-time low, low level of trust, if the church is not careful, it could easily be that we become a people who do not trust one another. The local church could become a community of people that do not rely on one another. People showing up on a Sunday reluctant to give a warm embrace, reluctant to entrust themselves to each other because there is no trust. People showing up on a Sunday not willing to take the pastor at his word, not willing to believe that this truly is what God's word says. And then going throughout their week, not doing life together in the way that the Bible commends us to because there is no trust. It's a real possibility for the church. And so the question becomes, how do we preserve the trust of the local church? How do we preserve our trust in one another? How do we grow in that trust? How do we become more trustworthy? And how do we grow to learn to depend on upon one another more? There are many, many answers to that question. But most foundationally, the most foundational answer you can give as to how it is we can learn to better trust one another is simply to learn how to better trust in the Lord. At the most foundational level, how is it that we, God's people, learn to better trust one another? How do we learn to better present ourselves as trustworthy? The answer is we learn how to trust the Lord. And the reason for that, as you know, is because all throughout the scriptures, there is a clear testimony to the fact that our horizontal relationships are indicative and a derivative of our vertical relationship. Whatever is true of us and our disposition towards God, at some point becomes true of our relationships with one another. So my failing to love God at some point starts to show up in a failure to love his people. My readiness to trust God will eventually start to show itself in my trustworthiness before you and my willingness to trust you. The Bible is very clear all the way through. It shows us a very tight connection between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Whatever is true of our relationship with him becomes true of our relationship with one another. So if we are to be a trustworthy community, a trusting community that is truly living our lives depending on one another in such a way so as to commend the gospel, we have to learn how to better trust in the Lord. Isaiah is a book all about trust. Isaiah, perhaps more than anywhere else in all of the Bible, gives to us a sustained theology of trust. From beginning to end, if there is one theme that dominates Isaiah's message, it is that of trust. Now, why is that? Because Isaiah had a very long ministry, chapter 1, verse 1, 
tells us that. And there were many things that happened over the course of his ministry that caused crises of trust. Perhaps the most significant would simply be that the northern kingdom was swallowed up by the Assyrians. During Isaiah's ministry, he saw the northern kingdom go into exile by the hand of the Assyrians, the superpower on the stage at that time. And so the southern kingdom, the Judites, are looking to their northerly neighbors, their brothers. They see them taken away into exile. It raises questions. It raises questions on a political or a military level. They understood that most likely they would be next. The northern kingdom had always acted as a buffer zone for the southern kingdom against their enemies, and and the buffer zone just disappeared. But it also raises spiritual questions. As they see God's people disappear into exile, it raises questions concerning their relationship to God. As they understand that most likely they'll be next, they ask, what does this mean? about God's relationship with us? Does he still love us? Has he given up on us? Does he still care for us? What about all the covenants and the promises that he has made with us? Can we still trust the Lord? And so God raises up the prophet Isaiah and he gives a message over 66 chapters that essentially says, yes, you can still trust me. Now, without being overly simplistic, the first half of the book of Isaiah shows the what. This is what I plan to do. God speaks through this man and he says to his people in the southern kingdom, here's what I am going to do. And he gives a far-reaching, high-level overview of, of his redemptive plan from that point in time all the way forward to the return of the king. He says, this is what I'm planning to do and in this you can trust me. In the second half of the book, he shows the how. It's as if Isaiah lifts up the the hood of the car and looks at the engine. He says, here's the what, here's what God is planning to do. In the second half of the book, he says, and here is how I'm going to do it. And as you know, in that second half of Isaiah, he introduces us to a key individual, central to God's plan of redemption, whom Isaiah simply calls the servant. And he says, you can trust me in this. Isaiah writes four servant songs. You know at least one of them, Isaiah 53, the most famous of the servant songs. And as a church, we'll consider the Lord's servant and why it is we can trust him. But this morning, I want to look at chapter 31. And here is where we see an example of something Isaiah does all throughout the message. He is saying to the people, you can trust God in the what and you can trust God in the how But interspersed with those encouraging messages, he gives warnings. Uh, He pronounces judgments. He speaks indictments against God's people. Chapter 31 is what we refer to as a woe oracle. Woe to those who go down to Egypt. He is warning the people against their present behavior. And it becomes a lesson in how it is we fail to trust in the Lord. This is how we fail to trust in the Lord. This is what goes wrong when we do not look at him and we go our own way. Isaiah speaks to these people about their going down to Egypt. He unpacks all that is wrong there and it becomes very instructive to us. It is not that we would go down to Egypt. Our issue is not on the surface exactly the same, but 
Underneath, we find the same logic in our own hearts as was in the hearts of the people of Israel at that time. We can divide the text into two. There are essentially two reasons why we fail to trust in the Lord. The first, I've said that we go down to Egypt. Why? Because there we find a solution. Why do we go down to Egypt? Because there we find a solution. And secondly, we go down to Egypt because in the Lord we find wisdom. In the Lord we find wisdom. We go down to Egypt because there we see a ready solution to our perceived problems. And at the same time, we don't run to the Lord because we know that in him is wisdom. And it can be a wisdom that is very difficult for us to come to terms with. And so oftentimes, as God's people, we are found to be trusting in other things. And the commendation of Isaiah is that we would simply look to the Lord, that we would trust in him. So let's think through those two points, beginning with, in Egypt we find our solution. Isaiah begins and says, woe, warning, to those who are going down. The tense of the verb suggests that this was habitual. They consistently look for help in other things, specifically here in Egypt. They go down to Egypt for help. They rely on their horses and they trust in their chariots because they're many, their horsemen, because they are very strong. Now you have to understand, in Isaiah's day, a common thing would be for the Israelites, God's people, to receive a messenger of a foreign king. A foreign king of a foreign nation would send a messenger with an agreement, with a, with a petition, with a sales pitch. Come into an alliance with me. Join with me. I'll provide for you. I'll protect you. I'll look after you. This was a common thing in Isaiah's day, and the Egyptians seemingly were doing it. Come down here, and we'll give you the security that you were looking for. The irony is self-evident. As you know, it was not that long ago in their history that they were enslaved to this very nation. It wasn't that long ago that these people were in Egypt enslaved, crying out for help from the Lord. The Lord saved them through the Exodus event. He wrought a great salvation for them. And at the same time, he crushed the Egyptians. He saved his people and formed the nation of Israel and crushed the Egyptians. Previously, the Egyptians had been the mega power on the world stage, but after the Exodus event, never again would they be number one. They were always a second-rate nation. And so the irony is that with all of that history, in the rearview mirror, the Israelites would choose to go down to Egypt for help. Or we might say, at an even more simple level, the irony is that they would choose a horse over God that they would look to a horse to provide their security rather than the Holy One of Israel. The problem that gave rise to such an error is that of military might, of that of national security. We're talking about the age of empires when you're always wondering about the stability of your country and whether you're going to be able to survive if the Assyrians come knocking. So their, their felt need, the problem that they perceive most acutely is that of military might or international security. 
And in order to solve the problem, they see in Egypt a ready solution. Go down to Egypt. They've got lots of horses. It's quite easy as we sit here today, quite removed from this text, to scoff at the Israelites, to to laugh at how foolish was their error. Yet at the same time, we could quickly probe our own lives and see how guilty we are of doing the same thing. We go down to Egypt all the time. And you understand that the issue is not that we would go down to Egypt per se as as a country. I was in Egypt in 2006 and had a lovely experience. I went to the pyramids, I went to the Cairo Museum, It's the second best museum in the world. The first is the British Museum. (laughs) I'm just being honest. We have all of the world's stuff in there. But the Cairo Museum is fun. And then I will say this. I had the worst McDonald's of my life in Cairo. It was terrible. But we won't hold that against them. You understand the issue is not going down to Egypt per se. The issue is not even that of military might. God is not opposed to the Israelites fighting and defending themselves. In fact, in this very passage, he speaks about his willingness to fight for them. God is not opposed to their desire to be secure politically and militarily. The problem is that they don't look to the Lord for a solution. They're not willing to seek out the Lord for a solution. So how then might that apply to us? How might that problem intersect with our lives? Again, we don't concern ourselves all that much with the notion of military might or international security. That's not the issue that keeps us awake at night. That's not the problem that plagues our thoughts. We live in an age wherein our problems come from our individualism. The 20th century was the century wherein we saw the rise of the individual, the rise of individualism. We live in an age where subconsciously we all expect the world to conform to our preferences and desires. Our goal is that everything would fall into place right before us. We live in an age where we're used to everything around us saying yes to our every inclination. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Isaiah chapter 31 tells us when God's people, the Israelites, were fearing an invasion, Isaiah rebuked them for turning to the plentiful horses and chariots from Egypt as a more certain help than the Lord. A well-known verse in Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But we've seen that the nation of Israel not only did not trust in the Lord, they longed to return to pagan Egypt for their salvation. We so often, quote, go down to Egypt, just like the Israelites, when we face problems too difficult to bear. And some will do this in an eternally fatal way by not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Repent. Give your life to Jesus Christ and find rest for your soul. You know, if you want to hear more about Jesus Christ and how to trust Him with your life, visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts 
for an archive of Pastor Paul's teachings focused on the good news of Jesus. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this program has had a positive impact on your walk with Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to be part of this gospel outreach ministry? Your support makes it possible for this teaching program to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. If you'd like to make a donation, simply go to the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate to make your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow, part two in our new series, Why Do We Go Down to Egypt? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.